Welcome back to the All Outdoors Photography Podcast, where we share experiences from out in the field and educate others through landscape, wildlife, macro, and more with other photographers from around the world. In today's episode, we have Tim Gray on the show. He's a photographer that's widely regarded as one of the top educators in digital photography. Uh, Tim also conducts workshops and seminars, as well as hosts a podcast and e-newsletter titled Ask Tim Gray. He has had hundreds of articles published in magazines such as Pixology, Digital Photo Pro, Outdoor Photographer, and others. Uh, so welcome, Tim, to, to the show here. Um, I figured just before we start, I want to ask you a question about your ideal day in your photography. <laughs> oh, that's a, well, perfect weather would be the start. Uh, normally, I would say <laughs> sleeping in, actually, except the problem with that, of course, as uh, I've learned many times over the years, is that some of the best photography and some of the best just photographic experiences happen at sunrise. But for me, it would be, you know, kind of being out in nature and, you know, for me, especially out in the mountains, uh, some of my favorite experiences photographically have been in the Alps and the Pyrenees mountains in Europe. And especially, you know, early morning, crisp morning, beautiful blue skies, maybe a few scattered clouds to make things a little bit more interesting. And just be, you know, I exploring, not having a specific plan as much as I'm big on planning and photography. I often talk about the photo pills app, for example, so you can plan for exactly where the sun or moon's going to be. But some of my favorite travel and photography experiences revolve around road trips. And I especially love road trips where there's basically no plan, where each day it's just let's hit the road and see what we discover and we'll end up wherever we decide that we're going to end up. And so, you know, first and foremost, good weather, a good location and good photography. That sounds pretty great. Yeah, I'd recommend the same. It's just, you know, going on trips and traveling, but having not really a fixed agenda like that. Um, do you just find that to be more freeing? Yes. And, you know, so often and I've done uh, well, number one, I've traveled somewhat extensively and in a wide variety of different ways, different modes of transportation. And sometimes it just makes sense to have a plan and a schedule. But with no plan, it feels so liberating. And more importantly, is that you can tailor your photography. So uh, just as one example, I had this road trip that uh, my wife and a friend of ours took through Spain. And we had, I think it was about two weeks long. And we started, we were starting and finishing in Madrid. And we decided that we would try to make a loop around the country, essentially. And Madrid is more or less in the center of Spain. And so the idea was that if we started running out of time, we could always make a beeline back to Madrid. And the beauty of the experience was that we could get to a location that we thought was going to be really cool and then maybe find out it wasn't as, you know, interesting as we expected or photographically just wasn't inspiring us as much as we thought it would. And so we could just move on. We could just hit the road and see what the next town had to offer. And so some of those cities, we kind of, it didn't necessarily resonate. Not that there was anything wrong with them, but, you know, certain locations didn't quite resonate, didn't inspire us as much. And then we get into the Pyrenees where we're zigzagging between Spain and France. And that was just incredible. So we really took our time there. And, you know, then as we get back over, you know, Barcelona and start working our way south, there were some areas that were interesting, some that were less. And so we stayed longer in the places that we really liked and, you know, spent less time in the places that didn't quite work for us. And actually, as it turned out, unexpectedly, we were able to, you know, move a little bit quicker than we thought we were going to move. And so we had a little bit of time to spend just a little bit of time in Portugal, which actually ended up being a, 
one of the highlights of the trip. And so just having that frame of mind of flexibility, and I think you can be more creative when you don't feel rushed, you don't feel like you're tied to a specific schedule. And so both for me personally, kind of psychologically, I guess you could say, but also creatively and photographically, I really love trips where you just don't know one day to the next what you're going to do. And in a way, it doesn't matter in the best way possible where you can just, you know, I, we could have gone to the first stop on our road trip and stayed two weeks there and then just gone back to Madrid. <laughs> you know, it could have worked out however it was going to work out. And I think having that flexibility is just, it's wonderful. And to me, it makes for a much more enjoyable experience on top of everything else. That's awesome. Yeah. So when you find a location like that, that you really like, say on a road trip, will you stay there and try to get like all the different lighting or do you, do you try to move on fairly quickly or will you just kind of narrow in on that one spot once you find it? I, for me personally, I usually like to kind of move on. And so, and that's just kind of my nature that once I've seen something, as long as I feel that I've gotten good photos. So for me, usually sticking around in the context of a road trip, at least, sort of is more about can we get better shots tomorrow morning versus you know this afternoon or did we miss the sunset so let's try again for tomorrow if there's something you know especially interesting and so for me it's usually a matter of I love having the flexibility but I also have a tendency I work fairly quickly in general and including photographically so as long as we got good light and good conditions. You know, if I feel I got the shot, I, I'm ready to move on versus spending lots and lots of time. But obviously, you know, that depends a lot on the the nature of where you are. And so, you know, if you're in the, you know, the, the mountains and you you know that there's some, you know, great waterfalls or some lakes nearby, well, you might want to spend extra time so that you can get to all of those locations. There's not always enough time in the day to be able to visit all the locations within a given area. And so, you know, when it comes to a road trip, I'm usually thinking of it as more kind of a, a tasting menu approach to travel and photography. And so I tend to, to approach that as, let me just try to have as many different experiences as I can and, you know, do the mountain landscapes and the, the lake sunrise and, but also mix in some little towns and cities along the way. Whereas I also do trips and have done trips where I'm in one location for a couple of weeks, you know, where I'm in, you know, Rome, Italy for a couple of weeks, for example, and just exploring, trying to find all the cool little sites off the beaten path. And well, in fact, <laughs> coming up soon, I'll be out in the Palouse region of Eastern Washington state. And I'm finally back getting to lead photo workshops out there. The pandemic kept us from leading photo workshops there for a couple of years. But I've been going out to the Palouse for about a dozen years now and typically spend two to four weeks out there. And so, you know, while I say that I kind of, I almost get bored easily and I want to move on, there's certainly areas and, and destinations that inspire me where I want to stick around for a while. And so I've been visiting the Palouse for more than 10 years. Each time I'm out there, it's typically anywhere on the short end, two weeks, but more often three, four weeks. And I still get excited about going out there because it's just such a fascinating area. And there's many of the subjects that I've seen over and over again because, of course, I've photographed them, but I've also led photo workshops, typically two or three workshops a year in the area where I'm taking other photographers to these same areas. And I'm still intrigued by the subjects, you know, old barns and abandoned farmhouses and rolling hills and whatnot. And I'm, 
you know, it's sort of funny because as I very often I'm focused on trying to find as many experiences as I can in the context of a road trip out in the Palouse, I'm revisiting the same locations, the same subjects over and over. And yet somehow it never gets old. It never gets tiring. And I, I find that actually that lack of change, if you will, as much as having variety can help inspire you, I also find that sometimes trying to work the same subject, you know, I go back to the same old red barn at sunrise and I've got to try to figure out another unique way to photograph this subject that I have visited dozens of times. And so it introduces additional challenges. And I think in, you know, in photography, probably in anything, if challenges can inspire you rather than frustrate you, then you're going to have a good experience and you're going to come away with better photos as a result. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What benefits do you think it helps for a photographer to return to the same subjects again and again? I mean, of course, there's the obvious of maybe you'll get better conditions or at least different conditions. Uh, you know, when I'm in an area, I often have a sense of what I hope that the sky might look like. You know, I'm looking for, you know, obviously at sunset, I want a beautiful sky, for example. You know, So there's some obvious things in terms of if you visit again, you might get even better circumstances, better lighting, better weather, cloud, you know, whatever the case might be, depending on the particular area that you're visiting. And you also start to get more familiar with the subject. So you know, I said when you're when you visit a subject for the first time, whether that is a you're visiting a particular country for this first time, a particular city, a particular mountain range, or even just an individual subject, the first time you might come away with a great photo. And I certainly have examples in my own photography where literally the first time I visited a subject and photographed it, I came away with what is still my favorite photo of that subject, even though I visited the subject dozens and dozens of times. So you might get lucky, as I have, fortunately, from time to time. But I find the first visit, that's where you're sort of getting to know the subject a little bit. You might get great photos, but you maybe don't necessarily know the subject well enough, and you might not get the best conditions. On the second visit, now you can anticipate, you know what time of day, what weather conditions you want for that subject, what, what sort of camera settings are gonna work best for that subject. And so you're starting to get a little bit more refined. And on the third visit, to me, you know, you're sort of almost becoming a little bit of an expert on that subject. And so, you know, I've been, for example, leading photo workshops out in the Palouse. We lead workshops with all of our guests in one van, and I'm driving, and I'm taking them all over this, you know, the countryside in the case of the Palouse. And there's been numerous times where we're on our way somewhere, and I'm, you know, I look out the window and I see these great cumulus clouds puffing up in the distance and I make a turn and I let everybody know we're not going with the plan we're going somewhere else because I've gotten to the point that I know the area the subjects well enough that ooh, this sky in that direction is going to work really good for a particular subject and so that level of expertise and it's tricky because you don't want to become too much of a creature of habit where you're always going to the same place you know, I've made more than a dozen trips out to the Palouse. I've made more than a dozen trips to Austria and even more trips to Italy. So I certainly have become a little bit of a creature of habit in terms of visiting certain locations. But I also try to make sure that I'm always mixing it up and finding new locations to visit. And so, you know, th there's a balance. And so you want to make sure that you're not becoming too much of a creature of habit, that you're never really producing anything unique. 
in the context of your own portfolio. But you also want to make sure that you know your subjects well enough that you're going to be able to really make the most of them. And so I think, you know, if you can balance that with always trying to challenge, to, you know, test your limits, to go beyond your comfort zone, to seek out new locations, new, new subjects, new types of subjects. You know, if you're an outdoor photographer and you mostly photograph landscapes, maybe a little bit of wildlife, well, there's certainly going to be plenty of birds out there if you're in the great outdoors. So maybe you should get yourself a long lens and try out some bird photography. So, you know, trying to balance that the benefits of photographing the same subject or types of subjects or locations multiple times so that you get better at it at the same time pushing your boundaries just a little bit as well yeah i definitely agree with that is there any uh, subjects in particular that you enjoy the most shooting subjects in particular that i enjoy shooting well i would say that certainly uh, birds are up there, I think, mostly because I just love anything that flies. <laughs> Since I was a kid, you know, I was always infatuated <laughs> with, with airplanes. And uh, mountains, for whatever reason, really resonate with me. So I, I love being in the mountains and photographing the mountains. And, you know, a, a mountain lake sunrise, even if that lake is like an hour's drive away, that'll get me up early in the morning, you know, whereas other subjects might not. And, you know, interestingly enough, which is part of the appeal of the Palouse for me, I really like old, weathered things with character, things that are, you know, showing their age and, and showing kind of their experience, if you will. So I, you know, I had this really great experience in Rome, wandering around the streets near Campo dei Fiori, a little piazza where there's a farmer's market. And just kind of exploring off the beaten path and go down this little street, narrow street, and there's this door that was just absolutely gorgeous, the old and multiple layers of paint that had peeled off. And so you've got like little chunks of paint. And, you know, I converted the image to black and white, but, you know, this old locking latch mechanism and it's just really gritty and grungy looking. And I'm there photographing and I hear a voice call out from just down the street. Oh, so you like my door? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I love this door. And he said, you want to see what's on the other side? And I said, sure. And so we go inside. The guy is a college professor from the U.S., but who's teaching in Rome. And so he's got this classroom with all these old maps and antiquities and stuff. It was just absolutely fascinating. Uh, so, you know, for whatever reason, old stuff somehow resonates with me. And uh, But those are some of the key things I would say that draw my attention. I, you know, I really, though, when people ask me what I photograph as a very open-ended question, my kind of classic answer is everything but people. And for whatever reason, you know, I've never liked the, the challenge of photographing people. It has its own unique stresses. And, but I just, I enjoy everything else. You know, I, I started off primarily as an outdoor landscape photographer. And, you know, I grew up in Southern California, so I love getting out of the city and into the hills and, you know, just going off into nature and whatnot. And over time, as I started traveling more and more, I started realizing that most of my photography involved going somewhere. And sometimes it was urban street photography and sometimes it was you know, bird photography or nature photography or travel photography or landscape photography. It was all these different things. But the consistent theme was that I was mostly traveling for the sake of going out to take pictures. And so I started thinking of myself as a travel photographer, except that's not quite right either <laughs> because – you know, it's not like I'm taking images that belong on a travel brochure, right? It's just I'm interested in photographing 
anything, to me, photography is first and foremost about essentially preserving memories. And so when I'm taking pictures, I'm mostly preserving the viewing experience. And so I want to photograph the views that I found interesting or fascinating, the subjects that I thought were remarkable in some way, the locations I enjoyed visiting. And to a certain extent, I certainly cherish photos of the people that I care about. I just tend not to be as comfortable with photographing people. And do you like to uh, kind of capture a, a natural kind of expression of the scene or are you more artistic with your, your capture of that? I would say in general, I think I, my approach tends to be more realistic in, in the context of accurately conveying the scene, but doing so creatively. So finding an interesting angle, waiting for the right moment in terms of lighting. And, you know, one of the photographers that I worked with very early in my career, George Lepp, would talk about the difference between an amateur photographer and a professional photographer was the size of their trash can. Um, now this is way back in the early days when we would capture images on film instead of <laughs> with a digital camera. And so of course he's referring to all those slides you're throwing away. And you know, there's certainly an element of truth. I, If I put together a portfolio of my best images from the Palouse, I have some images that I'm very proud of that I think turned out very well. I also have tens of thousands of photos from the Palouse that I could probably just as well delete <laughs> that are, you know, aren't going to win any prizes. And so, you know, there's certainly an element of, you know, it takes practice to get great photos. And, you know, you're going to hopefully be improving as a photographer over time and improving your the opportunities you create for yourself in terms of travel or, you know, which, whatever that means, right? I happen to live now outside of Nashville, Tennessee, so I don't have to travel very far to get to the Great Smoky Mountains, for example, or I can fly over to Europe and visit the Alps. And so it doesn't have to be going, you know, really far. It's just giving yourself the opportunity with subjects that resonate with you, that, you know, that are photographically interesting or visually interesting, and then finding what works for you. So, I, I don't tend to get, you know, what I would think of as being wildly creative other than hopefully composing a good good image and finding an interesting angle, an interesting vantage point, and considering camera settings, things like depth of field, and, you know, some, some long exposures, some high dynamic range imaging, but I don't do a lot of, uh, I guess you could say, more extreme creativity. You know, I'll do some motion blurs and some panning blurs and whatnot, but that's really the minority usually. I tend to focus on a more as it appeared in front of my eyes type of photograph just made interesting by hopefully really great conditions and the right composition, the right amount of depth of field, you know, all those sorts of things that are, you know, kind of the more classic, I suppose you could say, approach to photography. And I would guess kind of a lot of that came from your film days, right, with the, those kind of techniques? Very much so. And, you know, obviously the digital side of it, didn't exist when I first got started in photography and you know there there was well was there photoshop even around I don't think when I first got into photography I don't think photoshop actually existed so you know there was certainly this element of you had to get it right in the camera and if you messed it up you were wasting film and you know as a high school student or as I got a little bit older actually the the notion of spending you know ten dollars on a roll of film and ten dollars to get the film processed or you know whatever the case well in high school i was processing my own film but 
you know, there was an element of putting an investment into it. And then that it's a mystery which can be good and bad, but you don't know what you're getting until the film is processed. You don't really have an image until you successfully develop the film. And so that put a lot of pressure on getting it right in the camera. And I think it's one of the reasons I'm really grateful that I'm old enough that my start in photography was with film is that it taught me to be very aware, to really understand my camera, to understand exposure, and to try to make sure that I was considering composition, you know, creativity and all these things at the time of capture because once I left, I, I was losing that opportunity. And with digital, there's a little bit less of that, right? I mean, there certainly are situations we might put ourselves in where we have, you know, have limited time. I remember, for example, a trip to Easter Island. I, I was really fortunate to have had the opportunity to teach on board a cruise ship that was going to be stopping for two days in Easter Island, at Easter Island. And so it, it, that gave me essentially two outings, two opportunities to get ashore and try and get the shots. And one of the sort of top photographic destinations at on Easter Island is this quarry where there's quite a few of the Moai statues scattered around. And there's sort of the, the one most famous view or, or, or little location, this cluster of a handful of these Moai statues. And so when I was walking along this hillside by this, this volcano and this quarry, I, I knew tomorrow is too late. So I have to get the shot today. And thankfully, the... The weather was cooperating. It was really hot, but that's Easter Island for you. But there were some nice clouds in the sky, you know, good overall lighting conditions. I didn't have the luxury of sunrise or sunset, unfortunately, based on our schedule limitations. But, you know, as I was standing there in front of these statues, I'm thinking, I really have to get this right. I've got to find the right position, which, you know, part of that mentality, as I mentioned, comes from that, that notion of wasting film but also just the the fact that I'm not going to be able to come back tomorrow. So, and, you know, Easter Island is far away from everything. So if I want to come back, it's certainly an ordeal. And so I was really focused, you know, more so than usual on trying to make sure that I was getting a good composition. And, you know, it became a more almost sort of frantic <laughs> experience in that regard, whereas yeah, I'm a pretty, you know, laid back guy. So I'm, I don't stress out about, you know, a lot of stuff in general, but when I'm photographing in sort of an, an everyday location, you know, I lived in New York city for something like, well, close to 10 years. And so I knew that, you know, the iconic buildings and bridges and whatnot, they were, all, they're always there. I can, you know, go photograph them tomorrow if the weather doesn't work out right today. But when you have that scarcity of time, you know, knowing that, you know, in the case of Easter Island, it's now or never is, you know, really kind of how it felt. Puts it ex that added pressure on you, which is, you know, good and bad. But that's how we grow as photographers, I feel, is by, you know, having a little bit of pressure, pushing ourselves a little bit beyond our comfort zone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and with digital, at least it's a lot more forgiving where you can capture enough raw data and material to, you know, get by. Exactly. In such a way. And see what you got in relatively, you know, in real time, essentially on the camera's LCD. That, that's such a, tr it, it, it's, it cuts both ways. But as far as I'm concerned, it is such mm -hmm. a tremendous benefit. Yeah, for sure. So maybe describe us uh, the steps you took in, uh, in order to pursue your photography career up to this point. <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, in my case, it was actually a series of happy accidents. 
I had no intention of really getting into the world of photography when I when I was in probably high school, my thought was that I would go to college and I wanted to become a computer programmer. So I was a computer geek first and foremost. And so I was way into computers before I got into photography with, you know, a computer that by today's standards would, you know, we would just laugh at. But so I was really into computers. And so then I went to, when I was at high school, I switched schools and had the situation where I was doing really well in school, but I didn't, I hadn't taken very many electives. I sort of felt electives were kind of a waste of time. And my guidance counselor calls me in one day and says, you know, you're at risk of being ineligible to graduate. And I just kind of laughed at her because I had a 4.0 GPA at the time and, you know, I was doing really good. And she said, well, you don't have enough electives. I'm like, That's ridiculous. I don't take enough of these, you know, silly fun classes and you're not going to let me graduate. That's absurd. But I decided I might as well make the most of it. So I look at the list and I signed up. I, I needed three classes to fill. So I took photography, of course, journalism, and I was a teacher's assistant. I uh, didn't realize until about 10 years later how pivotal a moment that really was. And so to me, photography was a hobby. I loved the idea of being able to have a career in photography, but that didn't seem like a really viable career path. And so I was, again, really focused first and foremost on the computer side of things. And so I was doing computer programming, primarily database programming. And I had, moved, I had moved in the meantime up to Central California on the Central Coast. And this photographer, George Lepp, that I mentioned, he had a database system for some of the various photographic products that he sold. And I was an expert in the database platform they were using. And so they hired me to come in periodically and update their database. And in the process of working there, just, you know, as a freelancer doing, updating their computer software and whatnot, I was observing and getting to know what he was doing. And he's like taking trips for photography that are being sponsored by others and writing articles and magazines and whatnot. And I thought, you know, this is pretty cool. And I was starting to get kind of tired of the freelance lifestyle where, you know, you've got to hustle to try and find clients each week. And so when I heard that somebody was leaving their office I called them up and said, you know, I think I'd be interested in that job. And they jumped at the chance because now they had their tech guy <laughs> available full time. And over a period of time, I just got, you know, to demonstrate my skills, both in terms of computer software, but then also a, a degree of knowledge about photography and certainly a, an interest and a passion for photography. And so that just kept evolving where, you know, I was helping George to write articles for magazines and the magazine would ask me if I would write some articles and we started up a new digital newsletter, digital photography newsletter, and I was primarily writing the articles for that. And eventually that turned into a, a book deal, and then that turned into increased interest in having me speak at events. And it just kind of snowballed where it wasn't the plan at all. It was just kind of something to do in terms of, you know, just getting a job that would be more interesting and it just developed over time where, you know, now I've written hundreds of magazine articles and I think 18 books overall that I've written over my career here. And, and now, you know, continuing, and what I love most is not having a job, essentially, working for myself and being able to combine all of these things that I, I really enjoy. I love problem solving, which is helpful when it comes to technology. And I, I like technology in general. Obviously, I'm very passionate about photography. I love travel. And so all of these things just kind of 
have blended together in a really fortuitous way where I'm able to essentially make a living helping photographers, you know, as I say, it's helping photographers optimize their photography and their workflow, helping them become better photographers and helping them organize and optimize and share their photos using various software tools. And so you know, it really was not the plan at all, but it sure has worked out remarkably well. I'm, I'm really happy that things did play out the way they did because this, you know, accidental career of mine is one where I really never feel like I'm working. You know, it kind of almost feels like I'm playing every day. That's mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah. So you mentioned kind of like optimizing um, kind of the photographer's workflow. So do you do education uh, based on kind of online editing software too, um, as well as in-field instruction? Yeah, so most of, I mean, in the early days, I would say most of my teaching was in person at, you know, events and whatnot, and also through books. And that shifted over time where I started producing video, uh, instructional video for photographers rather than books. And so the books sort of fell by the wayside for a variety of reasons. Obviously, you know, physical books versus digital products, uh, there's advantages to the digital side of things. And so that just evolved over the years and, and really the video training started taking center stage. And I would say that is the primary way that I'm teaching photographers to really make the most of these tools is through video training. So teaching them to use Lightroom Classic, for example, to use Photoshop. We've produced video courses on photography itself. So, you know, on camera settings and composition and those sorts of things. And then that also started transitioning into online workshops that I started offering. And especially during the pandemic, this became popular because people weren't obviously getting around as much and, you know, but still wanted to kind of interact and learn, et cetera. And so we would do these online workshops where I would essentially share my screen and have a live little virtual classroom experience. And the photographers who were participating could ask questions along the way. And all those sessions are recorded so they could go back and rewatch if they needed and they could send follow-up questions via email. And so what's really remained the same throughout all of that is that my focus has been on helping photographers pursue their passion in photography, both on the photographic side and on the post-processing side. But that has, it, the, how the information gets conveyed is what's changed. And mostly, I would say the bulk of my audience is using Adobe software, Lightroom Classic and Photoshop in particular, obviously, but obviously some other tools. So I've certainly ventured into, you know, some of the online tools that photographers might use and some of the apps that smartphone apps that can be helpful for talk, for photographers. So, you know, I'm, I basically whenever I finish a project, it's always, okay, what's next? What else might photographers be interested in that I can help them with essentially? <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yeah, what drives you in particular to pursue teaching photography versus like, I don't know, something else like print sales, for example? Right, <laughs> definitely. I mean, well, and, you know, to me, I, I've often said that, you know, for whatever reason, I'm just kind of naturally inclined to be a teacher. And so, you know, people always ask, if, if you stop doing this for some reason, what would you do next? And I say, I have no idea. Like, if I couldn't do what I'm doing now, <laughs> I have no idea what that other thing might be but I think I'd be teaching something. I would find something else that I either have knowledge about 
or can learn about and I, I want to teach because I just, I love that process. I love figuring stuff out in the first place and then sharing that with others. I, I, for whatever reason, that just lights my fire, you know? So I, I always, I mean, I have, I remember as, you know, a, a teenager writing software, first learning some programming languages and not being able to figure out how to get this particular program to do what I wanted it to do. And it's trial and error, right? You change the code, you rerun the code, it fails, so you go back and you, you ran, proofread it again and figure it all out. And when it would finally work, I, I remember I was about 16 years old and I had this job and I, I would stay late so I could use their computers and I'm writing software. And when it finally worked, I'm alone in the office late at night, I just like am jumping up, throwing my arms up in the air, jumping up around the office, like so excited. And you know, then the, the next best thing beyond that is then helping other people essentially have that same experience. You know, people get frustrated not being able to figure out some, some technological gadget, some piece of software, whatever it might be. And so to me, one of the best compliments I can ever get is when a photographer says, thank you so much. I've, I had been struggling with that issue and you, you made the light bulb go on, you know, whether it was just by knowing the, what was involved in making something happen or the way that I was able to explain it. And so that to me is just the best is for someone to essentially have gotten rid of a frustration thanks to, you know, my efforts in, in terms of teaching them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people do say it's like early on, it's like, I wish I had this sort of thing. And that's why you, you know, these courses and everything and teaching exists too. Right. Um, and yeah, that's, it's great to have that aha moment too. Exactly. Uh, with your students. Exactly. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so maybe we could dive into some of your workflow um, back into the Lightroom side of things with um, how do you like organize image files and process them? Well, in terms of organization, to me, the the first fundamental step in organizing photos is the folder structure. And I know some photographers don't really focus much on folder structure. Some software applications, the cloud-based version of Lightroom, for example, really doesn't focus on a folder structure per se. But to me, that's such a fundamental approach in terms of how we're already storing all of our files. Go to anybody's computer and I'll bet you they've got a lot of folders with their own personal files, you know, their documents and their music and, you know, whatever the case might be. And so to me, the same holds true for photography. Plus, I've been around long enough to know that things change and software changes. Those photographers who went all in with Apple Aperture, for example, got so frustrated when Apple ripped the, the carpet out from under them and no longer supported Aperture. And so I, I like to stay, you know, as nimble as possible while still taking advantage of the tools that are available. So first and foremost is a folder structure. And my, the way I think about folder structure for your photos, and, and again, part of the reason for that is that it kind of lives beyond whatever software you're using to manage your photos. You can always depend on the operating system folder structure to go find photos. But the approach I take, or the approach I recommend is to create folders based on the way you think about your photos which could mean different things for different photographers, obviously. For me personally, as I mentioned, a lot of my photography revolves around travel, meaning I'm going somewhere for the purpose of taking pictures. And so if you ask me about a, per a particular subject, I usually think about the photos in the context of where I was. 
So if uh, whales, for example, well, I photographed whales in Alaska and I photographed whales in Washington State and in Hawaii. And so, you know, I can think of individual trips. And so for me, that works well. What does not work for me personally is a date-based structure. It works for some photographers. I'm always impressed when they can remember what year they went to a particular location. I have no hope of ever being able to pull that off. And, you know, obviously, depending on the nature of your photography. So, and so it's different answers for different photographers. And in fairness, different answers for different types of photography. So as much as I don't organize my photos by date, I also have my more sort of casual photos. You know, if I take a picture of my food in a nice restaurant, I'm not gonna make a folder just for those photos. Those are just gonna be some snapshots and that I might just put photos into a cluster by year, for example. But first and foremost, again, is that folder structure, something that works well for you so that ideally when you're looking for a particular photo, you have some sense of which folder the photo might be in. And then going beyond that, I personally use an approach of star ratings to identify the favorites. And so I, I have a tendency to capture a lot of photos. Thousands of photos in a week is pretty easy for me when I'm you know out there specifically for photography. And so I need some way to separate the wheat from the chafe as it were. And so I use a star rating system. And I actually, I use a, a variation. I, I don't use what I think would be considered the normal approach. So first off, I define the star ratings to something different than is necessarily what most would assume. So one star is not bad. One star to me is a keeper. And so when I first review my photos, it's just one or zero. Is it a keeper or is it a photo that I suppose other photographers would delete? I have a tendency to save the outtakes just in case, but I can filter my photos so I'm only ever looking at the one star or greater. And so then beyond that, I'll just kind of over time review the photos again, or as I'm working with the photos, sharing them to Instagram or what have you, the ones that I think are really working out better, then I'll increase that star rating. And so just quickly, I, again, the one star is to me a keeper. Two stars I think of sort of as one of the best of a given trip. Three stars I think of as sort of like best of the year. Four stars would be something along the lines of best of the decade. And then five stars would be portfolio. Th these are the images I'm most proud of that you know, if I had to say this is my life as a photographer, these would be the images that I would wanna share. And so that takes care, I would say, of like 90% of what I need in terms of basic organization, being able to find the photos I'm looking for. But of course, I might sometimes have memory issues, uh, memory failures where I you know, can't remember where I was when I captured a certain subject. And so, keywording, not the most fun task you could ever undertake as a photographer, but a helpful <laughs> task, nevertheless. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, right? Once you do it, though, it's so exactly. nice. You know, you just get all that stuff. It's, it's awesome. Oh, yeah. I always say, like, how much yeah. time do you want to spend keywording? And I think for most photographers, if we're being honest, the answer is none. And then when you can't find a photo, how much time do you wish you had spent keywording? And then the answer is like all of it. You know, I wish I'd just spent hours and hours keywording because now I can't find anything. So the way I think of it in terms of keywording, you don't have to keyword every image and you don't have to keyword every concept, but at a bare minimum. Now, of course, it depends on how you're you know, sharing. If you're photographing for a stock photography agency, you're gonna need to do a lot more keywording. But the way I look at it is there's two reasons for keywords. Number one is so that I can find something. 
if you say, you know, hey, can you send me a picture of a bald eagle? And I say, oh, man, I had this nice one. And where was I? Maybe. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess it's kind of obvious it would be uh, probably Alaska is a good bet. But let's say I couldn't think of Alaska. <laughs> you know, I could just search for the keyword bald eagle. And so you know, that's sort of the one direction is I'm looking for a subject. I can't figure out which folder it's in. So let me search for keyword, whatever the case might be. The other angle of that is reminding myself of what is the subject or what is this location. Now, I use a camera with a built-in GPS receiver, so that saves me a lot of times in terms of where was I when I captured this image. But that doesn't tell me necessarily what's the name of the subject, you know, or, or what is some of the details that I might forget at first glance. And so, you know, if you've got a picture of the Eiffel Tower, you're not going to forget that it's the Eiffel Tower, right? But you might be looking for a picture of the Eiffel Tower. So you've got a keyword Eiffel Tower, even though you know what it looks like. But then there's this other building in Paris where all the plumbing is on the outside. There's all these colorful pipes all ran, run around the outside. And it would be very easy to forget the name of that building. Uh, for me, it's even more difficult to pronounce the name of that building. But it's something like the Georges Pompidou building. I would never know what that was. I would never remember how to spell it. <laughs> so... You know, there's that other element of once you found a photo, keywords are going to help remind you of key details. Who is this person? What's the name of this location? The, you know, the, the spelling, et cetera, whatever the case might be, depending on the nature of your photography. And so bearing that in mind, I want to try and anticipate what am I going to be looking for and what am I going to want to be reminded of so that I can make the most use of keywording in terms of the benefit without having to put a tremendous amount of time and effort into it. And then also, you know, only assigning keywords probably to my favorite images. And I should actually mention one of my favorite little add-ons to my workflow that I came up with uh, not too terribly long ago, probably a couple years or so ago, is using color labels as an additional tool to help me. I mentioned, you know, these memory failures. Uh, I'm, you know, as I get older, I'm sure these are going to only increase. And what I was starting to realize is that on these trips, I might be busy photographing all day long. You know, you go out for a beautiful sunrise and you're out for a beautiful sunset and you might not catch a nap in between. So at the end of the day, you're exhausted and you're not going to, you might not even download your photos, let alone review them. And so I started realizing I was getting back from trips without having reviewed most of the photos. And so when I import my photos into Lightroom Classic, I actually assign a red color label to all the photos as I import them using a metadata preset. And then I remove that red color label once I've reviewed the photos and assigned star ratings as appropriate. So that the red color label tells me this photo, these photos have not yet been reviewed. You need to review them. And another relatively new feature that Adobe added to Lightroom Classic is the ability to add a color label to a folder. So I also mark the folder that contains those photos with the red color label, which kind of just stands out better so that I know there's images in this folder that need some attention. So, you know, those sorts of things, it's, it's fairly streamlined. It's pretty straightforward. But if you've got this process that works for you, I, I have a process that works well for me. And if you use that consistently, it doesn't have to take a huge amount of time and effort to get your photos organized in a nice, you know, kind of tidy, non-cluttered way where, you know, the ultimate goal is to be able to find the photo you need when you need it. And uh, I have pretty good success with that. You know, every now and then I struggle to find a particular photo, but for the most part, my system has worked pretty well for me. 
And I think really the important part too, at least in Lightroom, is you you really got to do it off the bat. You know, once you mm-hmm. import or whenever, like, don't wait, don't let things pile up, or at least that's what I found. Yeah, I think well, certainly not letting things pile up, not letting letting yourself get really far behind the curve, is I think really important. But also, well, there's actually kind of I would say two sides to that. I prefer, number one, get everything downloaded as quickly as possible, get everything backed up as quickly as possible, and I recommend doing your initial image review as quickly as possible. To you know, it, It's fresh in your mind, you have a better sense of the context you know, for the different photos that you captured and all that sort of thing. So review those photos quickly, you know, as quickly as you reasonably can. But then, I actually recommend for that sort of secondary review, to try to let a little time pass, if at all possible. Because when, it, when you have just captured these photos, you, the, the experience is fresh in your mind, but you also, I find, have a tendency to sort of exaggerate in your mind how important that was. Like, oh, it was the most brilliant sunset, five stars. You know, then you come back, and you're like, oh, wait, it doesn't look that good, actually, <laughs> you know? And so when it comes to that more refined review of, okay, let's be a little more honest with ourselves and how good was it really for that i try to allow you know like a week to pass if at all possible so that i the the emotion is sort of separated from that review i can look at it with you know a little more of a a little more judgment i guess you could say being my own critic so you know getting that initial workflow work done as quickly as possible both so things don't get backed up and also just so that you're actually you know the the memories are fresh and you're going to remember what keywords ought to be assigned and all that but then also maybe doing a review a little bit later on, coming revisiting your images after a period of time and kind of reevaluating them. Yeah, it can almost be too easy to fall victim, especially if you edit too soon after a trip to like edit everything oversaturated or something like that, also true. like overprocess yeah, it. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to circle back to uh, your star system because I, I found that really fascinating. So how many like, how many images would you say are like four or five uh, star images for you? Not very many. I, I, well, you know, it's funny because <laughs> how strict are you? I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, I, probably I would say maybe like you know ten thousand five star. No, uh, it's funny because when I teach, <laughs> I'm not using my actual Lightroom catalog because I wouldn't want to put that at risk while I'm you know kind of playing around and making a mess of things. But you know, I often will joke. You know, for example, I can show you all every single five star image in my entire catalog, and I hit the filter and it says no images match that filter criteria. But it's a fairly small number, I would say. Well, of course, it, it grows over time. So ideally, I go back and kind of filter that down. But to me, several dozen would be five star. And, you know, somewhere in the hundred, couple hundred that I've accumulated over the years are going to be four star images. But then we look at, you know, one stars, and it's going to be quite literally all have tens of thousands of one star images. But that's against over 400,000 photos in my catalog. So, you know, part of that is just accumulation. Obviously, there's plenty of outtakes. You know, I've always had this notion that hard drive storage is all things considered relatively cheap and time is valuable. So I don't want to spend time going back and deciding what to delete. Let me just find my best and I'll leave the outtakes as a kind of just in case if I realize, oh, wait, the one I thought was the best it was slightly out of focus or, you know, whatever the case might be. And so, but more recently, I'm starting to realize you know, that 400,000, I don't need that many photos. I'm never going to look at that many photos. And so it's time to start, you know, trying to clear that out a little bit, get more aggressive about deleting the outtakes 
I'm just reluctant to do that. As I mentioned, my, my focus in photography, kind of my motivation in photography tends to be preserving memories. And so I, I guess I almost have this like irrational fear of <laughs> letting memories go and then, you know, wishing that I had them back. Um, you know, I often use the example in that context of a, a photo. I have a four by six print of an image of a little Cessna 152, little two-seater airplane, and it's out of focus. And it's the kind of photo you would normally just throw away without even thinking of it. But to me, it's a very special photo because I'm the pilot of this little tiny airplane, and Part of the reason that that particular out-of-focus photo of an airplane that I well, was taxiing on the ground but you know was about to take flying is that my stepdad was afraid to go up in the little airplane. He was my stepdad. You know, six foot six, two hundred fifty pounds, construction worker, big strong guy, big muscles, deep burly voice, it, like what I always thought of as you know this almost big scary guy, right? Who was afraid of nothing but he was afraid to go in this little airplane with me. And, you know, so it's kind of just one of these memories, these moments that I cherish. And so I think that partially kind of feeds this notion of, you know, I, I'm more worried about deleting a photo and regretting it than I'm worried about having the extra clutter. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. So, um, yeah, moving, shifting gears here, I got two questions sure. for you here about, um, with post-processing. So what seems to be the biggest challenges that face photographers uh, when post-processing their work and how do you hope to teach others to overcome them? I think in general of post-processing in terms of optimizing photos, I would say that over-processing is probably the biggest culprit. And so trying to teach subtlety essentially. And so there's a couple of things that I'll do there. One is to demonstrate what's wrong with the over-processed version. You've oversaturated, the colors start to look a bit artificial and cartoonish, or over-sharpened, the image starts to look kind of crunchy and weirdly artificial. And you know, even something like clarity that has pretty good self-control, but if you push it too far where you're enhancing mid-tone contrast, the image can look a little bit off. And so whenever I'm teaching optimizing photos, I very often am pushing the image to an extreme, saying, you know, this is what's happening. And number one, that makes it easier for photographers to understand what's going on behind the scenes, which I believe is helpful in terms of them making a better decision about how they should approach a particular adjustment. And you know, if I exaggerate it, it just makes it more obvious what it's doing to the image. But I also use that as an opportunity to point out, look how it looks just way too crunchy or way too saturated or way too, you know, whatever the attribute might be. And then also giving suggested ranges whenever it's appropriate and possible. Recognizing, you know, that everybody needs to take their own approach and every image calls for different settings and you can't just do this robotically, but to give them a sense of what's a somewhat realistic range. You know, giving them permission. Look, you can go beyond that if it works for a particular image, but usually you're going to find, you know, with vibrance, if you're in the like 20 to 50 range, in most cases, it's going to be just fine. You don't have to push it too much further. And... But I think really most of it, my goal as an educator is not just to teach you the steps. And I see this all too often with tutorials. Set this value to this and that value to that and this other value to this with no explanation of what those values are even doing. And so I try to make it a point of helping photographers understand what is actually happening. You know, when you're sharpening mm -hmm. an image, for example, you know, the amount is the strength and then the radius is sort of, I think of it as size, it's how far outward from the edges is that enhancement occurring. 
and trying to give illustrative examples so that they have a, a true understanding of what's going on so they can make more informed and hopefully better decisions for their images. Yeah, for sure. Um, do you ever have problems with like uncalibrated screens on your uh, clients? Like maybe you're seeing something completely different than what they're seeing? Absolutely. You know, and it's funny, My what was yeah. intended to be my very first book, but it ended up being my second book, was all about color management. It's called Color Confidence. Uh, it's now it's wildly outdated, I'm sure, at least in terms of you know some of the devices it talks about. But in my early days of teaching photographers, one of the biggest challenges was color management, because you would make a print and it wouldn't match your screen, and this is wildly frustrating. Not only is it just frustrating in its own right, but now you're also wasting ink and wasting paper, and the inks especially were not inexpensive for photo inkjet printers, and so. That was a real big pain point for photographers, and so it was something that I dealt with pretty early on. And it would, I would always, you know, when I talk about optimizing photos, I would always start off with, I hope you calibrated your display. And unfortunately, that's not a big topic of conversation, and understandably, because today's monitor displays, first of all, now they're digital. When I was starting off, <laughs> do you guys remember CRT displays? You guys are I do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You guys are a bit yeah. younger than me. Uh, you know, Barely, these old <laughs> these old analog displays where there was wild disparity from one display to the next, even if it was the exact same manufacturer. With digital LED displays, the signal is digital from start to finish. And so they're much more consistent, they're much more reliable, they're much more accurate right out of the box. Unfortunately, that leads to complacency. I mean, it's great that we can sort of trust our display right off the bat, but it's also a big you know, negative in terms of that complacency where photographers, they buy a new monitor, they hook it up, they get to work. And admittedly, the color is usually pretty good. Not 100%. There's going to be some variation, but it's usually pretty good. The biggest problem that I find photographers run into, especially if they're printing, is that out of the box, a typical monitor display is going to be about a full stop, in terms that photographers can understand, a full stop too bright. And oh, wow. so anytime a photographer, and this was more common in, you know, in the good old days of uh, analog displays, but whenever a photographer would say, the print is too dark, first I would say, well, are you looking at it under a nice bright light source because prints reflect light, they don't emit light? And the second question is, have you calibrated your monitor? And over the years, you know, early on the answer was always no. Then it went through a period of time where it was almost always yes. And now I'm finding a lot fewer photographers are calibrating their displays. And again, understandably, it's not as important as it used to be, but it's still very important. And I think it's important that you are, you know, if you're optimizing your photo, don't you want to know what the photo really looks like to begin with? And you've got to calibrate your monitor display to ensure that. And I, I still find many photographers are not calibrating their displays. And, you know, I still, it's not as common as it once was, but I still get a lot of questions. It's still a very popular topic of, I, you know, I'm printing my photos and they're not coming out right, or even sharing digitally. I share these photos, I export them out of Lightroom Classic, and the exported copies don't look the same. Or I sent them to a client, and they don't look good. 
and you know, obviously, we're not going to get everybody in the world to calibrate their display. So if it's a photographer sending images to a client, it's always a roll of the dice in terms of you know what their actual viewing experience is going to be. But at least among photographers, you know, there's sort of no excuse, I would say, to be having an accurate look at your photos, both for yourself and for those that you need to share your photos with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's one of those things where everyone has such different displays and devices they're looking at. It's like, how can you really adjust and manage them all? But you can, you know, at the very least, teach them and steer them in the right direction. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. All right, so as we wrap up the show here, Tim, uh, is there any upcoming workshops or places you're looking forward to traveling to? Well, I'm just getting ready, as I mentioned, to head out to the Palouse region of Eastern Washington State for some photo workshops. So I'm looking forward to that. And, uh, you know, as much as things are starting to improve in terms of the pandemic, it's still obviously still a little bit restricted. So I'm hoping that, you know, things will go back a little bit more toward normal where, you know, I used to have multiple trips to Europe each year and, you know, random other destinations. And, I, you know, I do miss the travel. At the same time, I am appreciating having the extra time available to get caught up on projects back at home. But so certainly traveling is is high on the list photo workshops. I've really been enjoying the online workshops that I've been teaching. And so the, my schedule has been a little up and down depending on what's going on, but we try to have at least every quarter, a couple of online workshops. And, you know, it gives, I think a benefit for my students as well as for myself. So for me, it really, it recreates essentially to some extent that classroom experience without having to travel to a classroom. So people from around the country and around the world can participate and you know, learn in, in kind of real time, watching demonstrations in real time. So it's just as though I were up on stage, but you get to watch from the convenience of your own home and I get to teach from the convenience of my own home. And so that I've really been enjoying. So I, I certainly, I've got a, in fact, a weekend online workshop coming up next weekend, but I'll certainly be announcing additional online workshops for later in the year, in the summer and the fall. Mostly, you know, these days, most of my, efforts have been revolving around Lightroom Classic because that's what most of my audience has been using to manage and optimize their photos. But certainly Photoshop is still a big piece of the puzzle for many photographers. So we've been updating our video training on Photoshop in addition to Lightroom Classic. And then once I get some of these courses updated, then I'll be adding additional topics. And I intend to also get back into some of the video training courses on the core of photography as well. So... That, you know, mostly video training and the online workshops have been a focus and will continue to be a focus. And of course, the Ask Tim Gray email newsletter that I, every time I say it, it's still, as, as every time I'm about to say it, it still kind of blows my mind and gives me pause. That, but I've been publishing this email newsletter that's been going out essentially daily every weekday just about for more than 20 years now, which is just, I, I, didn't, wow. I didn't think I was that old yet, but here I am. <laughs> <laughs> Congrats on the consistency with that, yeah, right. though. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, awesome. That... Mm -hmm. Yeah, so yeah, thank uh, thanks for coming on tonight, Tim. We we really enjoyed it. What's uh, some of the best places for photographers to view your work? Well, certainly my website, Tim Gray Photo. So just remember that that's G-R-E-Y. So timgrayphoto.com is kind of the primary landing page for all the stuff that I do. My video training courses get published on our graylearning.com website. And you can read and sign up for the emails if you want. The Ask Tim Gray email newsletter has its own blog at asktimgray.com. Uh, and then certainly if you want to see some of my photos from my various travels, especially now that I've not been traveling as much, I've been kind of going back into the archives and looking for some of the photos that I hadn't shared in the past. But on Instagram and other social media, I'm Tim Gray Photo. 
And so you can check out some of my work there. And then on YouTube, I have a channel there where we publish recordings of the various webinars that I present and other video content, educational video content. And that's uh, youtube.com slash Tim Gray TV. Awesome. Tim Gray, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for watching the Owl Outdoors Photography Podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the video version on YouTube as well. You can subscribe down below, and we look forward to seeing you in the next one. Thank you.